In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, send us your Holy Spirit to be with us in our discussions and explorations now. Send us the splendor of your truth in the gift of the Holy Spirit to open our minds to the understanding of the mysteries of your very being and to the way of life in which you call us to live in the world and to announce your gospel to the ends of the earth. Strengthen us in your service and thank you for calling us to serve us in your church through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back to the Theology of the Eucharistic Table podcast with Abba Jeremy Driscoll and seminarians of Mount Angel. Abba Jeremy is teaching four of us seminarians how the celebration of Mass informs our theology, a method which he calls Theology at the Eucharistic Table. And we invite you to join us in our discussions. If you learned from this podcast, we ask you to leave a review on iTunes, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at theology at mountangel.com. That's theologyatmtangel.com. And to personally invite a seminarian, a priest, a seminary professor, or a close friend to listen to our show. We hope you enjoy. Well, after a long break from the Master Themes, several episodes dedicated to baptism, our baptism, and then the baptism of the Lord, we now return to our tour of the Master Themes, and we arrive finally at the sixth Master Theme, uh, the moral life. The moral life, I think we should say to our listeners that it's only you and me today, Brother Uh, Israel. (laughs) So, it's not that the others aren't speaking up, it's that they're not here. Correct. Uh, Uh, But we decided to go ahead with it anyway, even though something came up for all the other guys. Uh, Yeah, we took a long break from this movement of the master themes. In some ways, the break wasn't unnatural because uh, uh, the first five master themes all the way up to the uh, Trinity are in some ways uh, a movement from scripture to liturgy to doctrine. And so there's a kind of natural shift as we, as we use the, as we do the next three master themes, which are the sixth master theme is the moral life, the seventh master theme is spirituality, and the eighth is pastoral theology or mission. So all of that is about, uh, uh, how we live in the world, uh, once transformed by the sacraments, uh, once given our communion, uh, in the life of the Trinity and in the Paschal Mystery. So those are all the things we've been talking about. And so now, uh, speaking today about moral theology, that's, that's a, that's an easy theme to pick up on the basis of all that's gone before, mm-hmm. I think. And one thing that caught my attention a lot when we were, you know, first going through the master themes in class, Every once in a while, you would remind us, now remember, this isn't a scripture class. Remember, this isn't a liturgy class. Because the temptation would be, as we're looking towards the liturgy, to inform us, as we study all these other disciplines, to then focus on the disciplines themselves, rather than on that, maybe on that dialogue. Yeah. So I think something similar could happen when we talk about moral theology, to some degree where 
we're talking moral theology, but not moral theology pure and simple. We're saying, what is the liturgy or how does the liturgy and the experience of liturgy direct us in our thinking about the moral life? Would that be it? Yeah, that's right. In other words, uh, we don't get into the nitty gritty of particular moral questions <laughs> in, in the introduction of theology course, which is what this is. <laughs> but what, uh, what we're very careful to do with any particular discipline, and moral theology is a particular discipline, what we're careful to do is to really establish it on a, on a firm foundation. <laughs> and this is what the Mount Angel curriculum is about is uh, establishing moral theology on the firm foundation, we could say, not just vaguely of the liturgy, although it is that, you know, that yeah. something, uh, a transformation of us happens in the course of the liturgy, which we have spelled out, you know, we've spelled out that we're made to be church, we've spelled out that by means of scripture and sacraments, uh, God is acting on us, He's giving us communion in the Paschal Mystery. This unites past, present, and future. And communion in the Paschal Mystery is communion in the in the very life of the Trinity. Okay, I just rolled through the first five master themes. So now the firm foundation for moral theology is going to be, okay, given that, now we can open the discussion of moral theology... Uh, but we want to articulate how whatever we say needs to be rooted in what has already been said. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing here. Yeah. That was probably a very surprising part for me coming into class and hearing it put this way. The need for that, for lack of a super contextualizing of the moral life. Often, and this came up in our discussions on previous episodes, often Christianity is called is considered reduced to a series of ethical codes of moral imperatives. The gospel is reduced to be good and you'll get to heaven. So there, there we have it again, the temptation to start right away, how you live your life. And every once in a while, you'll have somebody say, well, what does the Bible say you should do? So there's a sense there, at least like, okay, good. That means we have to have some foundation in order for how we live our lives, but uh, not the full of it. So when you when you first told us that even in the catechism, and it's actually something you point out in your book, the catechism leaves the moral life for the third part, after the long exposition on the creed, after the talk about the sacraments, it's only then that we can jump into the moral life. It's sort of a, I guess you could say it might be a silly question, but Clearly, people have been talking about how to be good, how to do good things, how to live a moral life long before Christianity. So the moral enterprise has been a human question, really. Um, so what gives it the distinctive Christian character, I would say? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, when you say about the moral life is uh, living a good life is, uh, is a human search. And actually, people are able to live good lives without the Christian message. I mean, the world is full of evidence of that through the centuries. Uh, and even, you know, before before you did uh, 
theological studies. You you had to have a foundation in philosophy, Correct. and one of your one of your courses was surely ethics. And you look at the at the human search for what virtue is, how to how to live it, what are the difficulties in being virtuous, all that sort of stuff. That's not unique to Christianity. Um, what's unique to Christianity uh, is that basing ourselves on that human, on human nature, uh, basing ourselves on human nature and the desire of human nature to do good, uh, we are given, um, I, I would say, two things. Uh, we're given in Christ the grace to for our fallen human nature to 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 live in a non-fallen state uh, so that that so just the grace to live the human virtues but in addition to that and this is this is more distinctive still because of the kind of divine life that we're given a share in uh, through the sacramental life of the church Christians are actually called to a higher moral life uh, that would not be possible without the gospel and grace of Jesus Christ. So, um, in some sense, the, the, the ethical standard is higher, not because somebody's decided to make it even harder still to right. be good, but because divine helps have been given us that, in fact, enable us to live uh, a greater life. Uh, and this is, um, this is above all, shows itself uh, in the high calling of Christians to love completely, yeah. uh, to love one's enemies, uh, to, to continually forgive. This is not in human nature. Uh, basically, moral codes don't articulate the way Christianity does the the love of all people and the forgiveness of offenses in extreme ways that Christianity does. Mm -hmm. And that would include, of course, all of the kind of which developed within Christianity, a sense of social justice and social service, which is, uh, you know, just on the historical record, is is characteristic of Christianity's contribution to cultures uh, that that you really have a lot of uh, a great care for people who are sick, who are poor, who are outcasts by the rest of society. That is the uniquely Christian ethic. So, and that's because uh, we can we can live. Uh, we can live that kind of love in because we're sharing in God's own love. That's that's God's love empowering mm -hmm. us to love. Yeah. That's you know I, I'm thinking of a conversation we had really early on when we were going through the master themes as part of these podcasts, and the question revolved around well, who does what? What's the liturgy about? Is it God acting? Or is it man's doing? Or and if it's both, how does that work? What's the relationship? I feel a similar sort of I don't know tension or question around the moral life. You pointed it out where we talk about God's grace empowering our 
our human nature empowering us as individuals to live this higher calling. You say it's not in human nature. I don't need to read that in a book. I know myself how difficult it is mm-hmm. to actually forgive somebody for the smallest things, mm-hmm. for, you know, stepping on my toe, like literally stepping on my toes, for tripping me up, you know, for turning the lights off when I'm in the room. All these little things that are, you know, moments where outbursts of anger and it's difficult to let them go, these small things. Um, but then every once in a while, there's a, no, a moment where I'm able to overcome that and say, I've forgiven this, I've let it go. But similarly to the question about the liturgy, who's doing what there? You know, how do we, can we parse that out at all? I mean, where, where does God come in and where do we come in? Yeah, um, I think something is given us uh, by God. Sharing his life is given us by God. So love is given us by God. And we can love because we have been loved. Uh, but it's not like a zombie thing, you know, that we're just a sort of portal for God. Mm-hmm. God, God gives us the choice to receive this love and act on it or not. And this is such, which is so beautiful about God's gifts to us that he gives us so much responsibility uh, and, and the real power to say yes or no to him uh, with all of its consequences to say yes or no to this like deep love that would, that ought to be possible mm-hmm. for Christians. And the reason he gives us that choice, is he fills us with all that we need, but the reason he gives us a choice is so that... It, it's sort of a stupid way to put it, but it, so that we get credit for it. Credit in the sense of, it's something I did. It's something I couldn't do without God, but I, I did it because I chose to do it in cooperation with Him. Does that make sense? Do you yeah. see what I, so, so that, uh, otherwise, you know, He empowers us with something that's so powerful. If we had no choice but to, to be good with all of the strength he gives us, uh, well then that's just, that's not real. That's not a relationship. We're not real persons. Mm-hmm. What makes me to be the person I am is what I choose to do, how I choose to act. And, uh, and it, so I want to act with the love that with which he himself has loved me and that he has placed in me as a kind of power. Mm-hmm. So, and then you, well, let's parse that out even more and just um, put Jesus in the middle of it. That is to say, Jesus mediator. Whenever Jesus is in the middle, he's a mediator. Mm-hmm. So he's standing in the middle between this question. Yeah. He is God's love given to us. It's he himself who is given to us. Not vaguely. As the one loving. As the one who empties himself in service and in love for us. That's the Jesus that I meet and know. He gives himself to me completely in love. And he thereby empowers me to love others mm. 
as I have been loved by him. And so, uh, who's doing it? The mediator's doing it, but he has mediated divine life to me, a human being, and I, a human being, am doing divine levels of love in the world. That's, you know, that's the, yeah. Yeah. Um, doing lectio uh, over maybe this period, the period of about a week or so on the passage where a woman comes into the house of a Pharisee where Jesus is having, sitting at table with this Pharisee um, and the woman comes in, embraces the feet of Jesus and weeps uh, with her tears. She cleanses his feet with her hair. She dries his feet and then she bathes him with with oil, with ointment, and the Pharisee is just completely shocked that if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is that is that is holding on to him. And then that's when Jesus asks him the question, presents to him this little story. Two two men were in debt. One owed fifty I don't know what they were called, talents maybe or whatever they were, fifty dollars, and the other one owed five hundred dollars and neither could repay, so the master forgave them both. Who will love him more? And Jesus is, and so the, the Pharisee responds well. He says, well, the one to whom more was forgiven. And then Jesus uses that as an example to sort of explain what's happened right there. And then this woman, a sinner, has been forgiven much, therefore she loves much. And I, one thing that came out of that, Lexio period of over a week was just how much love can actually redirect our lives, can completely transform us, give new meaning where there was just pain, where there was just suffering. Uh, letting Jesus into our lives can be that moment where everything changes. It could be, you know, I, I, I've, for me, I think that moment came in a time of, it's more of a period of time rather than one single event, but I can see God's love changing my life so much that now I'm in a monastery. You know, like if you would have looked at my life 10 years ago, this isn't where my life was leading up to. It's something that God was doing. But to, to, to hear the way you, you were answering my question, the centrality of love for the Christian life. And to talk about the moral life too. Whereas normally I think the temptation is to go, let's talk about sin. Mm-hmm. Um, what... What do we lose when we when we start with sin? Yeah. What do we? What's what's the advantage of saying, all right, let's talk about sin, the the clear impediment to moral life or mm-hmm. an important factor in moral life? But where does sin come in then? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's connected with something else I wanted to say, and so I'll say it right now. Okay. Uh, to forget, we you know when we were talking earlier about uh, we don't want uh, we don't want to start the religious question with moral questions mm-hmm. and that there's a tendency to do that. There's a tendency to do that, especially in people that aren't Christian believers, but look at Christianity. Uh-huh. And, and so this is, a, this becomes a question about how you evangelize, how you, how you get the good news out okay. there. Because if you don't, uh, if you, people will look at Christianity and they'll see lots of bad Christians and they say, well, what do I need Christianity for? And, and, uh, You've heard it before where people say, uh, I don't need to go to church. I'm good. 
Okay. And, you know, that means they're kind of basically good, and they probably are. I don't dispute that. Uh, but you see, what all that is, is that, oh, the only, the only reason to go to church is to be good. That's not true at all. Uh, we mainly go to church for the encounter with God in Jesus. We mainly go to church because we let God love us there, and we are in love with Him. And then out of that comes good. So, you know, if you, if, if we let people have the impression that Christianity is just about being good, uh, we really don't interest them in right. the faith because they can see that you can be good without it. And they also see that there's lots of really bad Christians, which of course is a scandal. Uh, but uh, there's nothing very convincing uh, about uh, using, that as the using that as a measure. Something similar is true about sin. Um, sin, sin is what is wrong with the world. Mm -hmm. And this is, so from a Christian point of view, uh, sin is a, is a great diagnosis. I mean, there's clearly a lot wrong with the world. That's not a negative down on the world attitude. Everyone increasingly is, is able to recognize that the world is like very badly messed up mm -hmm. on, on a, right now on kind of the global scene of nations at war with one another, mm -hmm. uh, the global scene of, of competing economic things, the global scene of rich and poor, the global scene of hungry and wealthy, just on and on it goes. Or get inside any society and watch how everybody fights. We live in a nation now that is nothing but fighting. What is that? This is sin. This is people divided from themselves. So, yeah, we got to talk about sin for sure. But where you start talking about sin is where you meditate on what God himself has done about sin for us in the cross of Christ. Because that's ultimately the preaching of the cross of Christ is that how could it be that God has come among us in the flesh and ends up crucified? Yeah. This is horrible. That is the worst thing that has ever happened on earth. Mm -hmm. That response to God come among us in the flesh. That is sin personified, if you will. Why did Jesus let that, why did God let that happen to his son Jesus? He, the, the Christian answer to that is, he is dealing with sin at its mm -hmm. core. He is going right down to the bottom of sin and fighting it where it is with divine power because the, the things that introduce sin into the world is stronger than humanity. It's bigger than humanity and humanity has shown itself to be helpless against satanic divisive powers. So what the good news in Jesus announces is this situation in which human beings would be otherwise helpless to do the right. 
in Christ, it now, in principle, is possible mm -hmm. to do the right. Mm -hmm. And that Satan, in fact, is defeated mm -hmm. in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the way I'm talking here yeah. is way back inside all the master themes That's that have preceded. But the way I'm talking here is so that we just don't come to a moral question and tell people, hey, everybody, you shouldn't sin. Sin's bad. Stop sinning. Good luck. How will we stop sinning? Okay. We will not be able to stop sinning until we realize the way in which sin's power is undone mm -hmm. uh, by the action of God in Jesus. So then, once you once you realize that, you can, in fact, as it were, go after sin with hope of being rid of its power. But if you just face sin on your own with the, the intention like, oh my goodness, we shouldn't sin. Yeah. Well, of course we shouldn't. Everybody knows that, but show me how. You use the word helpless. Humanity is helpless mm -hmm. in the face of sin and that we can look back at history today and show that, the helplessness. I'm thinking Jesus was also to some degree helpless. He became mm -hmm. helpless. But that was the first time in a human being where that helplessness was not powerless. I mean, the very helplessness of Jesus on the cross takes up our own helplessness of yeah. sin. It's something, a condition he chooses. But that in that helplessness is what actually broke sin. Yeah. Um, that the one who was not helpless, the only one who had power against sin, was able to overcome it. But in helplessness, that's the, I don't know, that's the, I, that's sort of what I heard you yeah. saying. It, we were talking about that uh, at some point earlier in our discussion of various of the master themes. Mm -hmm that we talked about the, the deep mystery of the helplessness of Christ on the cross. That's like his identification with sin. St. Paul, that shocking yeah. phrase, he became yeah. sin for our yeah. sake. But what Jesus is doing there by he became sin for our sake, or elsewhere Paul says he became a curse mm -hmm. for our sake. Um, what Jesus is doing there is totally identifying himself in solidarity with the human helplessness of sin, but he is entrusting all that into the hands of his father as huh. as to, yeah. to save it up. So he takes that helplessness and 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 identifies yeah. himself with it as son of the father. And that's what it means to say the son is pleading for us, mm -hmm. interceding for us. And he takes all that and in the name of broken humanity, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the father immediately responds to that in resurrection. Yeah. And what, who rises, not just Jesus, Humanity can rise in him. So that's what it means to be joined to Christ from that pit of, of helplessness that is sin and death. That's how sin introduces death into the world. So there is dead 
divine son and that he goes there. This is, these are the images that, that the scriptures and the fathers use, that he goes there, that he goes there is what breaks apart the power of hell because he goes there in calling upon his father and his father raises him up from there. That's the point. From there he raises him up. And that's sin. From sin he raises him up. But not just him as an individual. From there he raises humanity up. There's a talk of, in St. Paul, the talk of Jesus as the new Adam. And Adam all died. So that Christ becoming the new Adam means that whatever has happened to Christ is going to happen to all those who are come after Christ, all those descendants of Christ, so to speak. Um, you mentioned that Christ doesn't just stand helpless, but he gives that helplessness that is both his own, but that belongs to all humanity. Well, he gives that to the Father. If we look at the different accounts of the crucifixion, whenever Jesus speaks, he hardly ever speaks to anybody around him. Like his dialogue is completely with the Father. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You mentioned it, it is it is done. Uh, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's where this is happening. Yeah. The, the sin is being taken care of in the relationship between the Father and the Son. Well, the Son is now in the flesh. Uh, so humanity's sin problem is taken care of by the Father and the Son. Yeah. And that... And that Another thing that came up, I remember when we were novices, you kind of walked us through the office, through the divine office. I think you gave us the image of, we begin vigils every day with, Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth, shall proclaim your praise. I think it must have been you who gave us those verses, to think of those verses as, well, that's how Christ prays from the, from the tomb. Um, Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. And what does God do? He raises him from the dead and boom, there the office happens. Yeah. yeah. There. There is in Christ, heaven destroyed sin, destroyed death, then praises the Father. So even after, you know, crucifixion gets taken up into the relationship between the Father and the Son, and then the resurrection too. Yeah. And somehow the Christian life gets sucked into all of that. That's where it starts. Yeah. Hey, the Christian life, in, in some sense, is that praise. Uh, the Christian life is that praise and that's, that's its, you know, we are, uh, St. Paul says in Ephesians that we were predestined yeah. to glorify God yeah. uh, for this. But see, uh, you see how all of that is a transformation of who we are mm-hmm. in such a way then that we can live a different ethic. And that brings us back then to moral theology mm-hmm. again. The um, the catechism in its third part on moral theology, having very carefully located why they're talking about it here, uh, it begins with that great passage from Leo the Great's, uh, one of his Christmas homilies. And I cite it in my book, and, and we can read it right now in this context, and you'll see that, that's, that this is the way he's talking. Uh, Leo the Great, the Pope in uh, the 5th century, preaching at Christmas time, says this, Christian, recognize your dignity, and now that you share in God's own nature, 
Do not return to your former base condition by sinning. Remember who is your head and of whose body you are a member. Never forget that you have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of the kingdom of God. See, now that's like a perfect summary of everything we've just been saying here. Yeah. Uh, but um, recognize your dignity. What's the dignity? The dignity is, well, it goes on to say it, you share in God's own nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the that's the new Adam. The, did we talk about that in the Master Theme? I know I did one of my videos on that. I did the... On the new Adam? Yeah, the old Adam and the new Adam. It's, I, maybe we didn't, but I get mixed up where I talk about things, but... Uh, that's a, that's a beautiful text. It's Romans 5, 1 to 12. And just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be brought to life. We can also say just as in Adam all sin, so in Christ all are made righteous before God. That's, uh, that's the new nature. But, uh, the exhortation, uh, of, uh, Pope Leo is, that's the case. So do not therefore return to your former base condition by sinning. So we are still in, in a kind of like in between place. Mm-hmm. In principle, by baptism and regular access to the Eucharist, we are already in the new risen life. And, but it is possible to return to the former way of life. And that's what, uh, sinning would be. And so this is an exhortation. Not to sin, but how, how you are, but how are you going to avoid it? And he's very practical here. He says, remember who is your head and of whose body you are a member. That's different than saying, he says, don't return to your former base condition of sin. And then you, you, you know, we're, we're inclined to say, well, yes, but I know I will. Not if you remember that you are one body with Christ. If, we, if you keep that in the forefront of your body and your mind, if that's what you're thinking about, because you haven't forgotten it, then you're going to have a power not to sin, which is bigger than what you would be without Christ. A whole lot bigger. And he says, never forget that you have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of the kingdom of God. You know, we could relate this more immediately to your question, how can we, how and when do we start talking about sin? He said, never forget that you have been rescued from sin, which we were helpless in front of. But nope, the good news, we have been rescued in Christ. And uh, and we've been brought into the kingdom and to the light of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is, well, you know, that category that's like all over Jesus' teaching, but the king, it's all over Jewish expectation and in, of the Messiah. But what the kingdom of God is when God is running the world. Well, God is running the new world in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus introduces the kingdom of God. And we are in that kingdom. It's for us to stay in it. I'm thinking of that passage where Jesus says, and I think this, to some degree, makes me uncomfortable when Jesus says, 
the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is within you or is within or is, is among you, I think is the, the right way. Uh, and I say it makes me uncomfortable because that also makes it very difficult because all of a sudden it's no longer something I can see. And he says so. It's not something you'll be able to see. It's not something to which someone will be able to point. And it leaves, I think, us, it leaves me wondering, where is it? And how do I know how much I'm in it and how much I'm not? Um, so it leaves me sort of in the dark about something that's I think, is fundamentally important. You know, where do I stand in relationship to this kingdom, actually? Um, and I can also point to times when just remembering, especially on a morning when I've got the confession later in the day, just remembering the words of absolution will help me make it through the day. Mm-hmm. Say, remember the words you have heard from Christ. Um, and kind of let that be your guide for the mm-hmm. rest of the day. Um, same receiving the Eucharist. Uh, that it occurs to me now, those are little moments where the kingdom is there. Um, little moments of remembrance. Well, I think this will be a good place to, to take a pause. Okay. Very and, good. And uh, come until next time. Okay. Thank right. you. Thank you, folks. Nice talking with you, as always. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes, which helps those who are searching for content similar to ours to find our show. To like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at theologyatmountangel.com. That's theologyatmtangel.com. And to tell your friends about our podcast, especially the seminarians, priests, and seminary professors whom you know. Above all, we ask you to pray for us seminarians, priests, monks, and professors at Mount Angel Abbey and Seminary, and to take the content from this episode into your own prayer. Until next time. Thank you.